0: Hey,
1: welcome to another installment of Jess Weaves. I'm Onimaru, and I'm here with Shocking. And today we have two awesome guests that we've brought over. Uh, Bryce, you want to say hi? Hi. (laughs) 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 Uh,
2: Thank you for having me on.
1: I should have said a little more about Bryce. So Bryce is my my friend in real life. Uh, I brought him on for today's topic, but we've also brought on our friend here, Carter, from uh he's a he's a minor celebrity on, on Twitter. Uh, Carter, you want to introduce yourself?
3: Hi, my name is Carter. Um minor celebrity might be a little bit too presumptuous, but um hardcore Ruby fan for better and for worse, hyperfixation. I that's why I'm here. I'm here to to talk about Ruby and give everyone an understanding of what they might not know.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so now Carter kind of gave it away. We are talking about Ruby. That is why we uh we brought them on cuz Shaw and I recently said, "Oh, you know, we she had like a conversation on Twitter um, on Twitter with Carter about Ruby and specifically Dead Fantasy and then we were like we should do a pod on it. But unfortunately, we're not the qualified ones here, so we are like we need to we need to bring on people that would be quali- quali- qualified enough to broach this topic with us. And that's why I thought bring a Price on and bring Carter on and the reason we're talking about ruby uh is because it if you if you don't know already it recently got announced that it got an anime adaptation or is getting an anime adaptation in the form of uh, ruby ice queendom uh and it has it's gotten a little bit of buzz because it has some legit like big names attached to it like studio shaft is doing it. Uh, Genurobuchi, who's known for uh, Madoka, Fate Zero, he's like attached to at least the, being the original anime, like concept for the story. Uh, And I think character, like the original character designs are done by Huke, who's known for uh, all the Steins Gate, like original character designs. So that's some pretty big names. And it has a fully star studded cast of voice actors. So that's like, okay, this is a legit anime. Uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the trailer dropped and, and we kind of watched it, got a little tidbit of it and, uh, it's not looking good, especially for a studio like shaft that's, uh, known for Monogatari and highly stylized, super stylish peak cinematography series. Uh, I don't know what they did with, uh, with, uh, with this one. Uh, so, you know, it's not, it's not looking too great. Uh, you know, um, what about you guys? Did you guys get to check it out? Uh, Bryce, uh, Carter
2: uh yeah i saw some of the trailer and um i wasn't overly excited i was, I was more like eh, it's there
3: that's happening that was that was my take on it
1: <laughs> what about you carter
3: um i had watched it when it i so i had seen the first promotional material that had come out um the image that was just like project ruby at the time and it was the image of weiss in that as death looking outfit behind all the mechs and whatnot um I saw it when it came out, was very interested. I kind of thought it was going to be along the lines of that um, that Star Wars anime-like anthology series that they did on Disney Plus when I first heard about it. But as we got closer to the official announcement, I saw that they were going to have those new outfits and whatnot, and I was like, oh, this is going to be, like, a completely new story that's really interesting and cool, um, especially considering the fact that a lot of what ends up happening um, in the side material for Ruby focuses on just, like, the beacon days and like volume one, to volume three. So I was very excited for a new take on this. And then I saw the trailer and the trailer was just everything that I've seen before in multiple different mediums and got a little bit disappointed. Um, especially hearing the fact that it was Shaft and Gen Urobuchi was going to be on it as well. Um, I've watched it a couple of more times since then, just to kind of, get a better understanding of what it might be and i also read the same post that you did from rooster teeth themselves explaining it so i'm in a state of cautious optimism with it i think that's the best way to go into it okay
1: okay yeah i mean it's 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 definitely i i saw the trailer and uh you know first i saw the 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 big names attached you know shaft obviously known for monogatari and a bunch of other big productions. So they're, they're named, you know, big name studio. Uh, Genurobuchi who did Madoka and Fate Zero, he's attached to it as like the original animation concept, at least his, his name's attached, that means a lot since he hasn't even been doing, he hasn't really been active in anime for the past few years. And even uh, the Hyuk, uh did the original character designs. He's like known as a character designer for Steins Gate. Uh, he did most of the Steins Gate character designs. I'm like, okay, this is, this is big deal. And then I saw the trailer and I'm just like, this looks like a fuck you production. This is like, this is not, this is not the level I expected it. It doesn't look, it doesn't look good. And I think it also, I think a lot of people shared that same sentiment and it sort of buried itself uh, and became irrelevant right after people saw the trailer and were like, okay, skip. So I don't know, like, I'm glad it's, it's, it's getting, uh, an anime, um, but, you know, I, I not sure if we can, you know, like, it'll be like a, like a checkbox, like, you know, but it won't, uh, really mean much, I think.
3: Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's interesting that Shaft was the one to do this. I feel like, um, I'm not, I'm not super into like the behind the scenes development and like understanding of like how studios function and how they work. I just kind of have the general basis just from the circles that I'm in and getting an understanding of it and as a follower of shaft because i'm a huge monogatari fan um i know that a lot of their major talent had left to other studios by this point point. and for the past couple of years outside of the madoka movie that they're making um they've kind of been putting out a lot of like c-list sort of stuff kind of like very middle of the road you kind of watch it um and then you're like oh yeah shaft was the one that made that um when i was watching the trailer the vibes that I actually got from it were Assault Lily Bouquet, which mm-hmm, is yeah. the last Shaft anime I watched. And I only watched, like, the first couple of episodes and kind of fell off. And it was funny, because when I was watching it, I was kind of like, this reminds me of Ruby a little bit. Um, <laughs> so it's um it's interesting that they're the ones taking it, um, especially considering that, aside from, like, their film, their major films, it's not like they've ever been really known for their, like, high like how do i put this dealing with like very action-oriented series
4: yeah mm. yeah yeah yeah
1: i don't really you know they've had action scenes in some of their shows but they're not really known for that so that that could be part of it but even in the i don't know I, again again just basing this off the trailer even from the scenes that weren't action heavy it just it didn't seem like a, a top tier production it didn't seem like the characters moved smoothly it was just kind of little little weird looking but uh you know besides besides the anime adaptation you know uh I think maybe now it it kind of has its anime cred but what do you guys think of Ruby as a series like the original Ruby what do you think of it whoever wants to go first it's
3: a loaded
0: question
1: (laughs) (laughs) we can we can unload it a little bit I'll
4: I'll go first so it can work up to our more experienced people okay so I mean, I heard about Ruby from other, like other anime people, other anime fans who had mentioned it, and then um, they brought up how like Monty Um had created it, and I knew about Dead Fantasy somehow, like separate, and I was like, oh, like that sounds really cool, and you know, it's gained a lot of popularity in the West, so I I checked out season one, and I thought it was pretty cool. I liked it, and you could tell that um, it really had his passion for very intricate very distinctive fight choreography i feel like that's like a big thing with ruby um Mm -hmm. i know we can get into this later i feel like it might be controversial to be talking about like does ruby look good (laughs) i will get into that later because i feel like that's kind of an interesting talking point but um no matter what i think no one can deny that it has like very detailed intricate fight choreography that obviously pulls from a lot of different genres like action movies, video games, whatever. So, um, like, his passion for spectacle, I think, was really there, and I found, you know, the setting and characters pretty fun. I'm just, like, a sucker for, like, oh, we have different fighting powers, and we're in a cool setting, and, like, we're fighting different guys in cool mm-hmm. ways, whatever. It's, like, it's fun stuff. So, I started season two, and I didn't finish it, not because of any fault of Ruby. I just kind of fell off of it, but I think it's a fun series. Um, I didn't get deep into the lore like I think you guys did or deep into following it. So I'm excited to hear what more there is to it. But um, definitely me not following it is not like against Ruby. Just sometimes you kind of lose track of things. And that's the camp I'm in
1: yeah and, and ruby definitely you know to take it even back a bit it's it's chronology its history is really like its claim to fame was really it was tied to monte ohm and his again like you said his passion for fight choreography and all of that that's what really put ruby not i wouldn't say on the map because people already knew he was attached to it and that's why they were excited for it but that's what he was known for by when he started out was with his original short called haloid and that was uh you know he did a uh, CGI fight sequence between Samus Aran from Metroid versus Master Chief from Halo. And he had reversed engineered the models from Halo two and super smash brothers melee and kind of took those models and ran with it and made this whole awesome fight scene that back in the day, back in those YouTube days that went viral and you know, mm-hmm. that spread. And then in t- 2007, then he made the series that you all love uh, dead fantasy, uh-huh. uh, which he did like seven shorts, Uh, well, which was dead or alive characters versus final fantasy characters focusing on different ones for each short. Uh, but yeah, it was all just action. And, uh, he did seven of them and number eight remained incomplete. He did a preview for it in like 2011 and that was it. He got fed up with the fans asking him for more as, as Bryce knows, uh, and uh then after that he uh he got focused on on Ruby because he had already started working for, for Rooster Teeth in 2010 doing uh Red versus Blue. Uh they brought him on to do that. Uh and then um then then he just they gave him his, his own show and that was Ruby and then he started doing that. So people were were already having that expectation especially because the Ruby trailers that came out before the show were very very like like very impressive and brought a lot of hype because they were yeah. A lot closer to what Monty Ohm is known for in, in his flashy spectacle, you know, uh, action sequences with all weapons that double up as guns. Yeah,
4: <laughs> yeah. You gotta love that, yeah. though. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and,
1: Yeah. And I actually gotta give credit where credit's due. Uh, the person that actually introduced me to Dead Fantasy and Monty Ohm as a person is actually right here is Bryce uh he was the guy on the first day of anime club with a laptop in like 2009 and he's just playing to dead fantasy on his laptop oh my God. And, and showing everybody and then we're all crowding yeah. around his laptop and being like oh what is that and then he was telling me all about it so
2: yeah, yeah. man uh yeah that was uh it's a long time ago jesus <laughs> <laughs> this is out there um yeah uh yeah watching dead fantasy it's uh was part of reasons why I, was very hyped for ruby and i think i stuck through ruby i've watched every volume for a long time so i've seen it at its best seen it at its worst yeah. <laughs> seen it at its uh just its lull so it's uh <laughs> you gotta keep going with it sometimes <laughs> like because it starts off like a typical story like okay you get introduced to these characters and everything like that seasons one and two and then I think season three is where – well, volume. I keep saying season. I'm already speaking like it's an anime or something like that. But, <laughs> yeah. um, but I think by, like, volume three, that's when everything really starts turning around. And, like, okay, they're not, like – it's like, oh, there's a greater thing going on rather than just a bunch of kids fighting monsters and everything like that. So you then get to volume four, volume five. I think volume six had, like, my favorite episode, the, the Lost Fable Super lore heavy, super lore heavy, and I and I love that so much. Uh but uh you know I am in it just to see the end of it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm sticking through it and it's like I just need to see how it ends, how they're gonna do it, how they're gonna finish it. Because it does it does have some glaring issues, and then of course the long wait for episodes or between volumes can be can be taxing at times.
3: Yeah. Yeah, um, so it was funny because I was, I was re-watching Dead Fantasy today in preparation for this. <laughs> um, and there was one thought that came to mind when I, was, when I was watching it. And the best way I can describe Dead Fantasy to anyone who ever wants to get into it, it's JRPG Anime Fantasia.
4: Yeah. That is what? all it
3: is. It, yes. is. it is all about the music. It's all about the visuals. It's all about the spectacle. Mm-hmm. And when they come together and combine, they make something really, really cool. I made a tweet about it right before I got on, basically calling it raw culture because that's exactly what it is. Um, And that was the appeal of early Ruby going into it. It was the idea that you were going to have this spectacle combining with this original music Mm -hmm. um, from Jeff and Casey Williams. Um, And the early portions of of the show are very much like they're very much your typical kind of school fighting school anime. And then as you get further and further on through the show, I think the best way I can also describe it is it's the most unabashed shounen you're ever going to watch <laughs> without ever wanting to commit to being called a shonen. <laughs> and it's, it's funny because the fan base doesn't like c- calling it a shonen whatsoever. They do not like it. They don't like it. That's the how comparison. you know
4: it's a shonen fan base. If they don't want to be called a shounen <laughs> fan base. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
3: See, I've, I've been waiting for people to start coming around and calling it a Satan in, in turn, but it's not, <laughs> it's not that. Um, The show, the, the, the tone of the show takes a very sudden shift in volume three and starts focusing on the grander aspects of the world of Remnant at large, for better and for worse. Um, And this is when the show, I think, kind of starts running into some of its biggest issues because A lot of this show, I think, was developed for people our age at the time when we were younger. And, you know, we were just kind of like, whoa, what's this cool, like, Mm anime-looking thing that's, like, on on, on the internet? I want to watch it. That seems cool. Mm -hmm. And then as its audience has grown up, I think they've wanted to tell stories that are for an older audience that deal with more mature themes. Mm -hmm. But it's never really gotten to the point where they've really allowed themselves to indulge in that. There's always been kind of like a PG-13 sort of rating with it. And PG-13 isn't bad whatsoever. You can tell amazing stories in PG-13. But I think a lot of what the show wants to do is really hampered by how much they have to tailor it toward a younger audience, in my opinion.
2: Hmm. Hmm. Okay. You know, I never thought of it that way. It's a good take.
3: I mean, you know... the. I, I think I think about it a lot just because, again, hyperfixation. Um, but I think about it a lot, and I think about a lot of what the show wants to tackle, and there's some very, like, heavy themes that the show dives into. Um, racism, classism, um, just, like, general... Like, a generational divide and whatnot. Abuse. Like, it gets very heavy at certain points, but it's always coded in a layer of like we can't let it go too far we can't let it get too real because if it gets too real we start isolating people mm. and i've always felt that's been the biggest thing that holds it back from ever really getting to the point that it really wants to get at mm. so that's really where my opinion on that comes from
4: i'm kind of curious because i feel like i'm not really super deep into like what rooster teeth has done but you mentioned like where they want to get it to Like, do you think they want this to be kind of like considered like a legitimate, like anime show on the same lines? And I'm not saying it's not a legitimate show or not like legitimate anime, but I'm thinking like, are they trying to go for something like arcane and they're not quite getting arcane. And I mean, that is like an animated TV show that a lot of people consider legitimate and they're just like, not quite getting there. Is that kind of what you're saying?
3: Yeah. Um, the important thing to remember is that Rooster Teeth is actually owned by Warner Media at this point. Gotcha. Um, so okay. they're underneath this subsection of like a broader, grander, like just general media hub. Um, mm-hmm. for for those that don't know, um Ruby Rooster Teeth has partnered with DC Comics to do comic book wow. adaptations of Ruby. Mm-hmm. And so far they've done two of them. They did one that took place in, in volume four, and in between volume four and volume five, which kind of filled in the gaps of like some stuff that was left out. And then the second thing they did was a crossover comic with the Justice League.
2: And oh, all, okay.
3: it was Wild. all, it was, it was like Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, and the rest of the Justice League in the world of Remnant, basically teaming up with Ruby to fight Star of the Conqueror. Um, so, <laughs> like, what?
2: what? Yeah, yeah
3: it, I didn't even know that existed.
2: It's so outlandish.
3: Wait. <laughs> The ruby rabbit hole goes deep. It goes <laughs> deep.
2: Can, Starro, um, can Starro even control a Grim? I'm so confused. I have so many questions.
3: It's like Grim Starro. It's like a Grim version of Starro the Conqueror.
2: Oh, okay. That's terrifying, actually.
3: <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. So, Ruby's been underneath this Warner Media branch for a while now, and it, it's, it's weird because... I only recently had to kind of come to grips with the idea that it's an IP now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. sounds very weird to say, but I was, I was on Twitter yesterday or whatever. And Warner media on their Twitter account, I don't know why anyone would be following it. Um, was doing some March madness bracket where they were like, vote for your favorite characters in this like March madness style bracket to see who wins. And like, you know, it had like a bunch of like, you know, people that were like on there, like Bugs Bunny, Harley Quinn, Probably a character from The Sopranos. I don't know. Um, (laughs) but Yang Zhao Long was on that bracket, and Yang won the entire bracket. She beat out Harley Quinn. She beat out Bugs Bunny. (laughs) Like it's it's crazy. But it it made me come to the realization really quick that like Ruby's an IP. They're doing these cringy brand crossovers with like everything else, and it's an IP, and. Mm -hmm. They really want to push it up to the to this <coughs> level because anime is becoming such a main mainstay in Western mm. culture, and I think the arcane comparison is definitely apt. Um, I think it, I think that's kind of what they're striving for, and I think there's a certain legitimacy that they're trying to aim with it, especially in the overseas market too. Because if you take a look at the Japanese dub of the series, there's some amazing talent working on it and for the voices. Yeah. Um like it is completely star studded from top to bottom. And it's it's just crazy, you know?
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I was talking about it with Bryce uh before this and he was reminding me that Ruby's like on HBO Max. And I was like, oh that's right. Like that's so like it just was so like I knew it, but like kind of putting it together was just so jarring in my mind, you know, just being on there. I'm like, oh okay. Um but then the other comparison with Arcane is also kind of crazy because I feel like for me, when I, when I was keeping track of Ruby, I I dropped off like volume five, like somewhere, I think at the end of volume five. And then I just kind of same reason, sort of like forgot lost interest, whatever. But like what Ruby has always felt like this sort of like, I'd like to say like Pinocchio story where it's like, you know, it's not a real anime, but it is a real anime or it's trying to be. And like with like everything. as as the more progressed, like the fans would kind of like either get their hopes up or, or like cheer for it. Like, Oh, you know, now it's not five minute episodes. Now it's 15 minutes episodes. Now it's 20 minute episodes. Like it's kind of now feeling more like an anime. Oh, it's, you know, the animation's getting better, like, or they're improving. And it's like, they're getting like step by step closer and closer to, you know, being like this, the real thing. Uh, You know, that's kind of how it always sort of felt. But then it's also kind of crazy to see that like, it's still like everyone. And I was, I was looking up some like recent like reviews and kind of to see where the consensus is now on, on the latest seasons. And there's a lot of disappointment because what everyone saw from the beginning and still sees now is that there's all this potential in Ruby, but it still hasn't reached it yet. And it's crazy to think like, it's not even now that arcane has come out. It's not even like the 3d that's holding it back because like arcane, which is 3d, like does it so well. It's yeah. so like, masterful like it's so good and now it's like you have this thing that exists that's just pretty much is the epitome of of what ruby's been trying to do this whole time and i'm not saying ruby can't still get there but it's just insane now like you know like kind of that they still haven't reached it
4: um so i guess like i don't know if we're planning on getting into spoilers too much but like i imagine the people who are watching this have seen who are watching our podcast now have seen ruby more than i have are you guys able to be kind of like specific about what you feel is disappointing? And this will count as the like spoilers. If you don't want to be spoiled, don't listen to the second And and of- I
1: can kind of, uh, as someone that doesn't know, like I just, I can actually think I can pinpoint what it is from what I heard. It has to do with the storytelling. It's like, like people accuse it of bad writing. Uh, I, said, you
0: know, <laughs> can- uh,
1: I like, like bad pacing, bad writing and being like, overly reliant on a formula where they kind of do the same things either pad things out or sort of just you know keep the status quo or whatever but i i I guess i could see how this is hard to like keep alluding to it without getting very specific on examples
4: because i i know about like i think one big spoiler that i could definitely see like i heard about this i'm like oh okay like shit's getting real like this is an indicator that shit's getting real and it's probably like the one character death that i think everyone knows about like that one like know with little i know i heard that and i was like oh i could see they're like ramping up they're trying to say like people die consequences happen we're not a real we're not a silly shonen where they come back to life it's just when they people die when they're killed so all
1: right all right here it is shit's getting real spoilers so now we can get into it yeah uh so whatever you guys have to say about that one um
2: i mean what do you want to know (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) Want to know. <laughs> what do you want to know i mean you flat out say it yeah that person dies i mean but sometimes it's more like you can anticipate a character's going to die like it's not the one death in season what was it was it volume volume two is when it's when uh can we say names uh, now yeah, yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. it was it was three when pira died oh yeah three yeah yeah, yeah. so I mean, you could kind of tell that it was uh, there were the signs were there like, if, if either she was going to die or be incapacitated for a long time, and because her opponent was Cinder and mm-hmm. Cinder had you know good control over her maiden abilities, and Pyrrha had magnetism, so I was like, okay, well, are they going to actually kill a character? And they did, so that was really shocking. I was like, oh, okay, wow, that's that happened to film the blank.
3: Just fill in the blanks real quick the maidens are basically female magic users within the, the setting of the show if i had to simplify it as easy as possible they are the avatar but for different seasons
4: oh cool that's yeah, a cool power that's a good I way like of that. putting it nice perfect apt yeah, yeah. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I'm sorry. To, I'm sorry to cut you off. I just no, to I
2: no, word no, word. Yeah, no, no, you're right. That's, that's <laughs> a good way of putting it. You know, yeah. it, it I gotta remember that. I <laughs> you have to explain certain things, cause I already know. What oh no, yeah. you're
4: fine. I could follow along, but I do appreciate that because that's yeah. like, oh, like that's a good way of putting it.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So to to get it like, so the maidens have like magic, but everyone else is not normal. Like they still have aura and their other special abilities with their semblances, but. Di- like the difference between a magic user and someone does aura is like few and f- like it's it's huge, it's yeah, huge yeah. in terms of ability. Yeah. So, Pyrrha dies, Ruby does her thing with her, um, uh, uh, with the light, which is uh revealed later on. Uh, be, uh, she has silver, uh, silver eyes. They alluded to that in yeah. the story, and so there's like always tidbits of like it's like tantalizing, like you're like, oh wow, this is like oh I want to know more about this I want to know more about that and and then you get the information like wow that really works and then you just have how the story progresses and it's just
3: like oh well there you go <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah um the, for further explanation as well the silver eyed mm-hmm. powers um if I had to describe them are kind of just the Mangekio sharingan but they're laser beams that only work on grim yeah
4: ah um, interesting cool okay so
3: so to go into a little bit more deeper portions of it, talking about character deaths, um, Volume 3 is when the show really like shifts its tone.
4: Yeah. It For the did. last
3: half of the season, it takes a really dark twist where the heroes basically lose. And oh, it's, yeah. a really, it's a really cool thing to watch play out, and some really big characters end up dying. Mm-hmm. Um, Pierre is the big one that everyone talks about because that was the one that had the most emotional weight and impact behind mm-hmm. it. But it actually kicks off with the death of penny the the robot character Mm -hmm. from the first couple of seasons and it actually comes because um one of the characters used an illusion on pira to make it look like penny was going to attack her with basically like gilgamesh's gates of babylon and she ended up using her magnetism powers so like hard to stop all of them that she basically cut penny in half oh wow it was like it was Pretty brutal. And it was, but that was like the thing that like set everything off into motion. Yeah. Um, and then immediately after that as well, fan favorite villain Roman ended up dying. Um, he ended up dying in this battle with Ruby on top of a on top of the airship. And basically he was beating down on Ruby and he was giving his whole like monologue about how like him doing what he was doing is all about survival because the world's just so much more dangerous now, only for him to get eaten alive by a grow. Um it's really really cool there's this and there's this real sense of like stakes and like oh they're really going to commit to this Hmm. and then four years down the line Penny comes back to life Mm, Um, now I know the big thing that probably people listening to this are probably going to say is well she was a robot like that doesn't matter like robots come back to life all the time Um, the big thing that kind of ended up hurting that reveal was twofold um, one takes away the stakes from previous stuff. It shows mm-hmm. that characters can come back to life regardless of their robot or not. And two, she came back to life without any real consequence to it. Um, yeah. one of the big things that they make it, they show is that Penny's robotic nature is functioned by like aura. Basically, she is soul powered, and yep. the idea is that if you kill the if you kill the soul, you shouldn't be able to like just. Come back to life the same as normal. Yeah, um, I know a lot of people were expecting that if Penny came back to life, she wouldn't remember Ruby or anyone else. She wouldn't even be acting like herself because she'd be an entirely different person. Yeah,
2: that was the big her. thing. Yeah,
3: it was, and it kind of play up this little like ship of Theseus parallel thing that they were building toward her character mm-hmm. with. Um, and when she comes back, she remembers everyone, mm-hmm. and everyone. Kind of just treats it as like, oh wow, Penny's back. Hi Penny, yeah. and then that's it. Yeah. Um, and it, it that that was one of the that wasn't the first moment that like really hit me as like, oh, this is what this story is gonna be about. Yeah,
2: it, it was definitely a drop of the ball on on a on a story thread that they could have used. That would have been very interesting to see play out. And that, uh, that Penny would be different. But, you know, I think part of that is because Ruby is like a retelling of a bunch of different fairy tales. So, like, Penny's character is the st- basically the story of Pinocchio.
0: Mm.
2: So yeah, I think that's partially why they lean towards having her remember everything. Even though, if you want to do it from a good story standpoint, it's like, okay, we mm-hmm. can use the robot angle and say, well, it's Penny, but it's not the same Penny. Mm-hmm. And that would have been definitely uh, a better way of doing it yeah. uh, for a story. And then maybe even like, oh, through you know, random trope, anime trope. Oh, through the power of friendship, she gets her memories back or something yeah. like that. They could have done that, but maybe they decided not to. Who knows
3: on on what uh, on that point? The weird thing, the the weird thing, because I, I totally agree with that. I one hundred percent see what you're saying, especially considering how her arc ends up playing out. Yeah. Um, it's weird because. Every character in Ruby is based off of some kind of like fairy tale or you know like myth myth or whatever, Mm -hmm. Um, and they very much pick and choose how which ones they want to adapt super faithfully. Yep, some of them are very much just a total like aesthetic thing, like Ruby being Little Red Riding Hood. It is just the red hood. That is it. There's nothing else to it. (laughs) Um, Nothing. (laughs) There's nothing else to it. But then you have Penny, and then you also have Cinder who cinder is based off of cinderella and cinder's entire backstory is just cinderella word for word Mm -hmm. penny's entire character arc is pinocchio word for word and that's also part of what i think ends up hurting a lot of the perception of the show for a lot of people especially once you get really deep into it because usually you keep in the back of your mind like oh so this character is based off of Cinderella. What does that mean? How does that play into her character arc? Only for you to then see it plays into her character arc by the fact that she was raised by an evil stepmother, she had mm-hmm. two evil stepsisters, she was abused, and then her fairy godmother came along and gave her magical powers to free herself from there. And that ends up being a little bit of a disappointment because you're like, oh, I was really like invested in this character, but She's just Cinderella but evil.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's why a lot of people don't other than cinder being cinder because <laughs> <laughs> She's such a She's such a like she's such a bad villain but not not the type of bad in a good way. <laughs> she's <just laughs> a bad villain. Like you don't know, her motivation is just like I just want power. That's it. And it's just like what well, power for what? No, I just want power. I'm a, well, that's okay, but cool. what for what? <laughs> so <laughs> it's like you you'll do all these horrible things. She, you know, she she doesn't really see anyone as a real comrade at all. They're just like means to an end. And it's just like I'll never it's like a weird insecurity thing she has, I guess, but it doesn't come off as something you can be sympathetic with.
3: She's that's just a- a jerk. <laughs> that's the best way of put. That's the best way of putting it. Um, yeah. It sounds
1: yeah. It sounds like the show doesn't flesh out the uh, characters enough.
3: I mean, well, uh, I would
2: yeah, I would say that's one of the things. Like, I guess a character who gets who gets some love, uh, who gets a little more is Crow. Crow is a you know he's a fan favorite character, and uh, I believe it was in the between volume seven and eight that he you got a little bit more. Um, you know more interesting information from Crow, especially with how he feels about his semblance and how he feels about being around everyone. And for people who don't know, semblance is basically like the Ruby superpower that you that, that, like. Each individual person has like their own semblance, and it's unique to them. And so Crow. Crow's semblance is bad luck, right? But he meets um, another person named Clover, whose semblance is good luck. So they kind of balance each other out. Uh, but it, it kind of alludes to that Crow's semblance is bad luck because he believes it's bad luck.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's,
2: it's more of a causality thing. If he believes he's good luck, it'll come off as good luck. But if he believes mm-hmm. he's a bad person and then all he does is affect bad luck, then it's going to come off as bad luck. So and it's one of those things where it's not a semblance he can shut off or control. He can't aim it. It's just always on. So you you get to see it's one of the reasons why Crow drinks so much because he always thinks he's always going to hurt people around him, and so that, it gives you a deeper you know insight to his character, which is really good. And I think another character that um, they flush out a little bit more is actually the big bad Salem. You actually see stuff about her. Um, they dedicated a whole episode to her and uh, Ospin, uh and revealing to you the story of Remnant and all that, and. You really get to see like her whole story is that she's just been alone for so long and she's basically cursed, like basically cursed. And her whole reason reasoning for doing all that she does is basically like to end her curse. That And that's really interesting. And I think that's a really interesting take on, on her character because you can kind of feel sympathy for her, which they which they do well with Salem, but they fail with Cinder. Mm. Yeah,
1: and for context, Shaw S- Salem is the the big big bad.
3: Of oh the yeah, movie. I figured. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah,
2: she's yeah. basically the Wicked Witch of the West. That's her character because
3: yeah. Ozpin is basically the Wizard of Oz. Yeah, gotcha. She's the Ozai to Cinder's Azula. Uh, but yeah.
4: then it's the but then it's like it's funny because then in like Avatar, most of the time I feel like people like Azula more than. Um, Ozai, Ozai? But, like, this sounds like the opposite. Uh, yeah, so. the way around. Yeah. Cinder, oh, Cinder's interesting. Really
3: the, yeah, Cinder's the lancer to, to <laughs> like, like that, everything. Um, it, and it's it's really interesting though how you know we talk about all these side characters and we don't really bring up the main characters all that much. And part of the reason why we don't is because as the show has gotten further along, the main characters have all kind of blended together into one like hive mind. Yeah. To mm. the show's detriment. Um, and it, it it really sucks because the four main characters all have very distinct personalities, very distinct characteristics, very distinct backstories. And they never really let the Teen Ruby be the focus. Mm. And it kind of stinks because when you end up falling for these characters, which is very easy to do, um... You want to see their stories play out. You want to see them develop. You want to see them go to their logical extremes. I'm wearing a bunch of Yang stuff right now. Yang is like my favorite character in this entire series. I love her to pieces. I think that she could have been the most interesting character in the series. Because there is a lot... Her story is a lot about identity. It's a lot Mm -hmm. about um, just like mental health. Coping with loss and being just a better person to watch over those you love. And I think it's a very, like, personal and deep story that deserves a lot of introspection, especially considering the fact that when you take a look at her semblance and how that plays into her character, there's the idea of, like, I'll take a beating, but I will get back up and I will get stronger from it. Mm -hmm. It's powerful. It's really great stuff. But they kind of sidestep away from that to focus on other things because the plot always has to take precedent over the characters. Mm. And that ends up being a really like big sour note for me because like I said, these characters are very easy to fall in love with. They're very easy to get an understanding of and to really like latch on to. So when you don't feel like they're getting the attention they deserve, it ends up, It ends up really weighing on you while you watch because you're following just a bunch of other characters who are just there to push the plot along and don't really have anything all that interesting to them. Or it's something that you've maybe seen like a bunch of times before, Mm -hmm. and you're just kind of going through the motions waiting for the other shoe to drop.
0: Mm, Yeah, that's tough.
1: And it's funny because I asked uh, Bryce yesterday. I was like, "Hey, how do you?" Because uh, he was like telling me all about the backstory and his, you know, favorite parts right. about Ruby and Salem and all of that. And I was like, "Okay, well, how do you actually feel about the main characters, though, since it's their story?" And he's like, "Oh, they're insufferable."
0: <laughs> and, that yeah. Yeah.
2: and I was like,
1: "Wait, but they're the leads. Like, yeah, but I don't care about them. <laughs>
2: they don't like yeah. Yeah, I mean, to to be honest, like they don't. I think the only character who actually does any real character like." Changing in terms of an arc is is Yang, who actually has like an arc of ch- of her character. Like they spend a couple of volumes in her changing and growing, but Ruby is still Ruby. She's ex- almost exactly the same as she was when this started. Weiss has kind of changed a little bit, and Blake basically resolved some family issues that was that was going on. And that's but her character. I mean, for me anyway, and this is my own personal opinion, like they really haven't like done anything that would change the story, change the story in terms of for them growing, which they should though. Because if you think about all the stuff they go through, they're basically kids. They're kids. Mm-hmm. They're they're not even like one year out of school. Their their school got destroyed before they could even get more training, and then they're fighting people. They're not fighting like half-trained hunters or hunt or or huntresses they're fighting fully trained people who they were trying to also become fully trained and um that's one of the things where where i look at the story and i'm just like well there's no way they should be able to beat this person up like that doesn't make any sense but they find a way to beat them up and that's you know that's an anime trope of course. You know, you're, you know, you're the main characters. Your your act your your team's name is the name of the show. So it's yeah, like, yeah, you're, like, you're never gonna lose. And you know, that's one of the things with you know with stakes on characters. It's like, well, I'm. Not, I mean, like like when they when they chopped off Yang's arm at the end of volume three. I'm like, wow, that was huge. It's like, oh my god, they chopped their arm off. And then you remember, oh wait, they kind of revealed that um, Ironwood. Ironwood is actually the um, headmaster of another school because there's basically like four schools. Where they all train, uh, where you train hunters and huntresses at different uh, at the different countries in Remnant, and um, in his fight in fighting in, in Volume Three, you find out that Ironwood has basically half his body. Well, not half, but his upper torso, I think, on his right side is almost completely machine, because his character is basically based off the Tin Man. Mm. So it's like, oh, well, so Yang's gonna get a metal arm. That's, that's basically where I jumped to when I, when I go, okay, we have it. She's gonna get a metal arm. But the journey she goes through from the trauma from the guy who cut her arm off, which was Adam, who's an acquaintance of, of uh, Blake, was really interesting storytelling. It was really interesting storytelling, the healing process she had to go through. And then when she actually comes face to face with Adam, um, you can see her battling the demons of trying to overcome the fear of like of what he did to her so it was it was really interesting um seeing that happen and how that played out other than that every other character's been kind of eh. <laughs> for um, the main for the main three for me yeah. for the main for the main four for me
3: <laughs> the um it's funny the way you were talking about how like they're going and fighting all these like mm-hmm. higher level people now the mm-hmm. way I think of it it's like that um it's like that one meme about jrpgs where it's like chapter one save, save cat from the tree chapter 15 fight god <laughs> that's, <laughs> where that's where they're at right now yeah um so I, I i have to agree though that the main team is kind of insufferable right now mm-hmm. um ruby's a static character that doesn't really inflict change on anyone um mm-hmm. Blake has kind of been spinning her wheels in the same character arc for a while. And then Weiss is kind of interesting because if you ask most of the fandom, they probably say that Weiss is their favorite character because she's the one that goes through the clearest development. Mm-hmm. But her development is more so in Volume 1, she's a bratty, whiny, racist, silver spoon-in-her-mouth kind of girl who thinks the world should be at her beck and call mm-hmm. until she gets called out, and until the writers realize we can't have one of our main leads be racist. And they just kind of sidestep away from that. Yeah. And then her character arc then at that point is I grew up in this family um, that was very cold um, with this kind of semi-abusive father, you know, and it's one of those character arcs that if you've, if you've seen like these kinds of shows before, you know exactly what she is, what she's about the best. I mean, I'm a huge Persona fan. She's she's Diet Mitsuru. That's really mm-hmm. what her character is. Um, and it stinks because you go to these really interesting locations and worlds. Um, and you know, he's talking about Ironwood. Um, mm-hmm. The the headmaster, the kingdom that he's headmaster for, is called Atlas. Atlas is essentially this combination of like Midgar and the floating city from Alita: Battle Angel. Mm-hmm. Um, And it's really fascinating and interesting because that's when you start getting into the classism and whatnot, and you start getting into this idea of, like, what would you do to protect what you care about Mm -hmm. with Ironwood? And it's a really fascinating kind of, like, twist on what happens with him, and it goes into this kind of, like, villainous turn for him that you get, albeit it's a little bit rushed, and the thing is, a lot of that villainous turn was because of actions that the main characters took in leaving Ironwood yeah. out of out of the loop, not telling him the truth, hiding information from him, going mm-hmm. behind his back and doing other things for no real reason. And mm-hmm. then when basically everything hits the fan, they then kind of get angry that Ironwood turned on them.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah.
3: And you end up kind of get. And they have this very, like, unearned air of, like, confidence to them. There's this scene in Volume 7 where Team Ruby's fighting basically, like, the strongest people in, like, Atlas's military. Mm. And and they, they say something to Ruby along the lines of, like, give it up. You can't beat us. Um, like, you guys aren't the strong. Um, we're the strongest. And then Ruby says something along the lines in like, this really smug, unearned voice of, like, you were the strongest. Then you trained <laughs> us. And yeah. like, I was like, it like hurt hearing that because I was like, bro, you've been training with them for like five minutes, man. Like,
2: yeah, up. he's Yeah, done. it was, yeah, that, yeah, when they faced the Aesop's, that was a whole, oh my goodness. And it's more or less the whole thing. Like, they go more into it and in, like in volume eight, it's like the Aesop's aren't really like friends, they're more like co workers, but even though they are friends, and it was because of like how Ruby's team trusts each other to do things that they ended up coming up on top in that in that contest. And it was uh, it was one of those things. It's just like okay, they're gonna have they have to give them this liberty this liberty to win this fight because of the plot. Because if they if they get beat and get captured, well that's it. <laughs> then you go to the next thing. So they had to do that because basically I would say Ruby's characters are like agents of chaos, like Team Ruby. Are agents of chaos agents of chaos everywhere they go something like either blows up or something goes wrong or they have a plan in place like the adults have a plan in place and i think i think that's an interesting way for the story to, to go it's like oh wait that's right they're still teenagers so like i think ren ren who's a member of teen juniper who was a you know member of pira's team and everything
4: yeah. like that. It- yeah, I remember them.
2: Yeah, he has a um he has a in volume 8 he gets into an argument with Jean and Yang and he basically like has a realization like, "Hey man, we're we're a little bit over our heads in this. We're we're kids. Like we're not even none of us are fully trained." He looks at Jean like, "You lied about going to our getting into our school." <laughs> yeah, <And> I remember. <laughs> it, it was like a whole thing and it's like, "You know what? He has a point. Like they're all kids and they know a bunch of stuff about the world that they the adults don't even know. Like they're how you're supposed to stop an evil witch who controls all the monsters in the world when she can't die. Like that's one of the bigger things that they reveal in um in Ruby and The Lost Fable that Salem, the big bad, cannot be killed. In no way, shape, or form. They cannot be it, it and you realize just how serious that is is that they blow her up. Where nothing is left of her and she reforms from the smoke. So it was it was like, oh wow, yeah. You know, that's actually very terrifying when you know you can't actually kill the person. Well, kill or stop. I know that I think that's one of the the things that in the future they're gonna be leaning towards to Ruby and the the ending of that story with, with her. It's like they're either gonna have to either seal Salem away or find a way to heal her from what made her the way she is because yeah. so that's the only way to stop her because she's actually immortal not retroactively immortal she's literally cannot be killed
1: <laughs> and and she's one of the only few or, or one of two people that has actual magic versus everybody right. else that does exactly
2: so. like and, um the four maidens have magic but that magic came from yeah, yeah that's yeah yeah, I mean, yeah.
0: yeah so. that brings
4: up an interesting point of like you're mentioning like oh yeah that dude has a point like Does the story kind of treat it as if, like, oh, like, all these people have different perspectives because of the events that transpired? We're going to, like, let you kind of make your own decision on who has a point? Or are they kind of like, nah, that guy's silly. Like, we're taking down the big bad kind of thing.
3: The show wants you to believe that everyone's point is kind of, like, valid. Volume 8 is very much about that. Because Mm -hmm. I think, like, the opening song even says something like everyone's the hero of their own story or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's very clear whose opinion is right and whose opinion is wrong, and Team yeah. Ruby's opinion who's right and everyone else who's wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really like the Agent of Chaos point that you brought up, because I love those kinds of stories. Um, I'm a huge One Piece fan, and One Piece is literally the definition of, we are Agents of Chaos wherever we go, something's going to go down the second we get
2: Pirates, here. Pirates, man!
3: <laughs> it's, something is going to go down the second yeah. we get here. Um, but it's always portrayed in a way that kind of pushes the characters forward and enforces everyone else to kind of reevaluate everything about them and what's around them. Team Ruby doesn't really ever mm-hmm. get that benefit. It's usually we mess things up and we mess things up because we think we know better than everyone else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that yeah. that gets really infuriating.
2: Yeah, it's it's basically being a bratty teenager and thinking you're right and you know better than everybody else. That's but they are bratty teenagers they are teenagers yeah. it's 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 say. but i think atlas volume 8 in um in atlas mm-hmm. volume 7 and 8 gave us a real interesting um idea on the perspective like you were saying like cuz you get to see the haves the have nots then you get to see the military how they view things and then when everything's going down when um the grim when there's a massive grim invasion you get to see how atlas is prioritizing different things in terms of what they need to do. And of course, at this point, Ironwood's character has done a complete 180. He's gone from being the protector of trying to protect everybody and trying to bring people together to just being like Atlas is the most important. Atlas must survive. If Atlas doesn't survive, the world is doomed anyway. So it's one of the, it's one of the, the things that you see what's his driving force of his character, and then there was like uh, I think there was like rumors or story or things in story that he was acting this way because of his semblance, but uh, I don't think they ever really revealed in the in the show what his semblance was or if his semblance was even active. So I was really confused about that.
3: His um so his semblance I forgot the name of it, it, it exactly, but essentially it's like a it's like a hyper focus sort of thing where it's like mm-hmm. once he sets his mind to something, he only like focuses on that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. To, to to the detriment of everything else. And yeah. you and it's you're right. They never did bring it up in the show. The only time the semblance has ever been mentioned was in a QA panel at a convention where they yeah. purposely brought it up. And then I think Ironwood's voice actor was asked about it. And he was basically like, I never even heard of that before. <laughs> <laughs> like I never even heard of it. And <laughs> it 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 presents these really conflicting like points of view of like well, what are we supposed to believe? Personally, I lean toward the fact that that was just some hand wave to get everyone to kind of look away from how his character did a 180. Mm-hmm. But if they want to commit to it, have at it. Cool. Yeah. Um, I mean,
2: that's that's more glaring on, like, the bad storytelling that the voice actor didn't even know. Oh, that's why this happened. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. that, makes yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
2: that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah, no, that's, uh. yeah, that was bad. that's bad and then penny dies again so that
3: yeah Yeah, Yeah. um remember how i was talking about how certain characters follow their their um their fairy tales to a Yeah. penny's one of them yeah Um, so penny ends up getting hacked with a virus at a certain point in volume eight um and the virus is so strong and potent that at a certain point she basically turns to ruby and she's like because i have to back step a bit in volume seven penny ended up getting the maiden powers she ended up getting the maiden powers, so basically, she got hacked with the virus, so that way she could come back to Ironwood, and she didn't want to, and at a certain point, she basically turns to Ruby, and she's like, bro, you're gonna have to kill me. Like, like mm-hmm. y- we can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. And they finally go, like, no, 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 we're not doing that, we're not killing you, that's not happening, we'll figure it out. Um, and eventually, the way they figure it out is, um, one of one of the four magical MacGuffins of the series is called the Relic of Creation, which is basically the staff that Hosts this genie-like figure inside of it that can basically build anything that you want, but the only but the thing is, it can only build like one thing at a time. Um. So currently, the relic of creation built um the floating structure that is Atlas. So the second they use it again, Atlas is yeah. just going to come hurtling toward the ground. Uh, mm-hmm. I see. I see. So they go in and they get the relic using Penny because. Maidens can open the doors to get the the magical macguffins of the series, mm-hmm. um, which I'm trying not to get too deep into, just because that's a whole other rabbit hole. God, um, so she, so they end up getting it, and they pop the genie out, and he's like, "Hey, like, what you all want?" And basically, they go, "Can you make Penny a human body?" And mm. he he makes Penny a human body, so Penny becomes human and her robot body gets destroyed or whatever and then they then you they then use it again to basically then go um okay um we need you to build like these gateways to another kingdom so we can transport every single citizen of Atlas to this other kingdom and it takes place in like this void realm basically where there's only a bunch of, a bunch of pathways and doors that you can walk through or whatever mm. um that ends up getting blown up in their faces because Cinder comes in and basically kind of starts picking them off one by one, um, and basically sends them off into into the shadow realm where it looks like they're basically ending up at the World Tree, or as I've been calling it since I've seen it, Rock and Jima. Um, mm-hmm. That's what I've been calling it. Um, and during that, um, I think she, Cinder ends up like piercing Penny in like this really like bad way. That looks like it's going to be fatal. But Jean kind of comes to her side. And Jean, who has the healing semblance of the group, basically goes, I can heal you. And Penny goes, no, no, don't heal me. Let me kill me. And let me pass on the maiden powers to someone else. Because mm-hmm. we can't let Cinder get the maiden powers. That's kind of like the spin. But Jean has the healing semblance. And he's used it to heal much worse injuries in the past. So mm-hmm. Jean basically... Kills Penny, the maiden powers go to Weiss's sister Winter, mm-hmm. um, and then Penny dies again. Yeah. Um, and she was only human for about a grand total of an episode, yeah.
1: And this time she's dead for real because she was human, so
2: yeah, yeah, she's she's I'd be they, very surprised if she comes back, but they no.
3: have more door open for that actually, yeah, Funt. I'd be very <laughs> surprised again.
4: That's like so interesting because you can see, like, in that description, I could see like so many different parts where they could they're like forced to make tough decisions and where it could end up like tragically happening. But then it seems like they're just like, So we're not, we're gonna kind of take not just the easy way out, but like a weird way out. Like, you could see, like, you know, they gave, they have to sacrifice the city for her, but then like she's getting attacked. So it's like a big tragedy. And then like, but, like, the fact that they could heal her and she chooses not to seems a bit weird. And so, I think I'm but... understanding and seeing the vision. Yeah,
2: yeah, it's it it can be... Infuri- I, I'm, I, like I said before, I'm just hanging in there just to see how they end it.
4: So <laughs> I, that, I, I
2: really want to see how they resolve it. Cause... That makes
4: me wonder, like, do you? because you guys seem like very... Like, fans who are invested, but, like, very balanced fans. It makes me wonder, what do the people... How does like the majority of the fan base feel? It's like, is it? Cause I think it's like a big fan base. Are, are there very much levels to it of like Ruby fell off, Ruby fell off or Ruby was always bad or Ruby was good, but now it's not as good. Or are there some people who are like, no, Ruby is perfect. it has never faltered. It did nothing wrong kind of thing. Like where does everyone stand?
3: Um, Ruby's fan base is incredibly fractured. Okay. Yeah. Incredibly <laughs> yeah. fractured in that regard. From what
1: I've seen, I could tell you that too. It's like, there are the believers that it declined a long time ago. There are the believers that it shouldn't have continued past volume two or volume three. Uh, you know, there are the people that are saying, hey, you know, it still has its uh, problems, but it's okay. You know, it's getting better and better. And then people that uh, <laughs> were fans up till volume eight, and now they're like, fuck this show. So, but I'll let Carter take away in case I missed any.
3: Um. So, ruby's fan base encompasses a lot of like other shows that are of a very similar vein like Shira, cora the owl house amphibia shows the young adve- the young adult adventure series that okay. you see um there is a very hardcore fan base that looks at it and they're like this show is amazing because of the amazing amazing representation that we have in here Mm -hmm. Of the great storytelling, um, the wonderful fight scenes. There's a clear vision, and I just love. I love these people. hashtag Stan Weiss. Um, (laughs) Then you have the other half of the fan base that's like the show is absolutely abysmal. It is a train wreck. Why do y'all still like this? And there's like this like there's warring faction between the two of them, the two sides, where it's like that. Um, and. It makes discourse around the show very difficult because there's never really a healthy way of discussing it. Be, discussing it because I think there's a lot of people who are like myself who are very tied to the series, who very much love it for, who very much loved it at a certain point, but are very disappointed with it. And then there are the people that just kind of love it all the way through, and they're like, "This is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life."
2: That is an apt description of the Ruby fan base. (laughs) So this is
4: the most peaceful Ruby discussion of all time.
1: Yeah, actually. Yes, let's go. And personally, this is actually encapsulates my hesitation with even wanting to broach Ruby again after. Because Shaw brought it up to me. And I was just like... No, I've been purposely avoiding Ruby conversations (laughs) since like 2016. (laughs) Like, I don't want to get back into this. We've
4: talked about Attack on Titan so many times. We have gone to the no, no, no. That's different. That's different. (laughs) (laughs) That's not this. No, but that one's different. This is close to home.
1: This is in the Western.
3: (laughs) I actually think I actually think that Ruby discourse is worse than Attack on Titan discourse. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah.
0: That's wild.
3: See, Attack on Titan discourse takes on a bunch of different forms. Yeah. And it's never really centered on like one thing outside of the ending at this point.
4: Yeah.
3: Um, but Ruby's discourse is about everything. There is uh. not one thing that is that is sanctimonious about this entire show.
4: Nothing is and sacred.
3: Every, nothing is sacred. Yes. Everything is up. They, they can
2: find an argument, yeah. you can find an argument about almost anything. Yeah, Ruby. because there, there are the people that
1: hated Ruby from the beginning, obviously since volume one, they're like, this was ass. It was crap since the beginning. And then there, and then a real fraction started when, you know, for context shot, when we were talking earlier about the tonal shift in volume mm-hmm. three, that was cause Monty Ohm died in between volumes two and three. So yep. he died in the early production of volume three. He didn't get to finish it. So, and his, his, he had his own, I think vision for volume three that was probably in outline form, but not completely. So the team kind of had to run with like whatever they had and they kind of went their own way about it. And I remember, I can't cite anything at the moment, like some interview or something with the crew at the time saying that because of, of Monty's death, they, they felt, I don't know, they felt like moved or compelled to kind of capture that in, in that darker tone and dealing with that loss in, in volume three. And that's why they went in that direction. And then also like on a technical level with the loss of Monty, and this is also what creates some other fractions and divisions and, you know, controversy in the fan- fandom is that it lost some of, you know, Monty's signature style of mm-hmm. that action, mm-hmm. that flashy sequences that only he could kind of do in his way. And the team kind of knew that. So, uh, they sort of like, instead of trying to recapture that, and it's understandable to a degree, their choice was more to double down on the storytelling. Because, you know Monty wasn't really as much about the storytelling he had the writers handling that and he had his vision but he was more about you know making the sequences and that what he's known for and they were like okay we'll, we'll just we'll just double down on the lore the world building and the storytelling and you really get that like season volume four onward trying to do that
3: in between volume three and volume four as well because Monty had died Monty was working on Maya I believe the mm-hmm. it was the 3d animation program he was using that was what he was very familiar with I believe that's what he built. Um, dead fantasy off of Mm
0: -hmm.
3: when he died most of the team actually wasn't very comfortable with maya they had been working on blender from red versus blue um and in between volume three and volume four they switched over to blender which is when the show takes a very new art style and a very different look to it um which i personally think was to its detriment just because i think that in volume three that's like the crispest, the, the models looked crisper than they ever had before. The colors completely popped off the screen. And I think that's when they had finally gotten a good feel how to handle movement and whatnot in there.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and once they moved over to Blender, a lot of the color was really lost in the series. And a lot of them got muted. You can take a look at the, um, the concept art that was done for the characters and like their designs, and then look at their, in, their, their in-show models. And the colors are very muted and it's it's a very noticeable thing because color is such a huge part of the show so losing that i think also lost a bunch of its identity with it as well
1: so this is just a very minor correction so the switch did happen that all happened as carter said but it was they switched to maya uh monty did use some maya but his original program that he built everything off of was poser Uh, That was what he was huge on. And it's not an industry standard software. No one animated in fucking Poser, but Monty did because he liked to do a lot of mocap. Like he just would just green screen himself doing a lot of the movements and stuff. So, and he could do that in Poser. And he had this really weird, like idiosyncratic workflow that didn't work for everyone except just him. And it kind of like, you know, from interviews, like sort of frustrated like the crew because it was, you know, it was just his way of doing things. He was all about, efficiency, but standard like animators, people in the industry use Maya and that's what they know how to do. And he was like, well, I have all these other tools and all this other stuff, I gotta do it my way, you know? And that was what made it tough. So as soon as he like died, they like just switched over completely to uh, to Maya. Uh, and I, like, I really, uh, I know this only because I was like, I followed Monty closely because I wanted to be an animator at time, So I was like very focused on that aspect of him. Uh, to the point that embarrassingly enough, I actually asked him in person once, if I could be his intern, I gave him my business card and that was actually at NYCC 2014, which was unfortunately, I think one of his, either his last convention appearance or one of his last convention appearances. Uh, and yeah, so that's, uh, that's how I know about that. Like, that was the, the part that anyone that wanted to make their own anime or was inspired by Monty as, as like his work ethic and as what he did and was able to achieve. That's the, the part that, you know, besides the awesome flashy action sequences, it's more of what he was able to do at at such a young age. So, you know, he inspired us.
3: I respect the grind by the way. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Love that. Love the hustle. I mean, I was going to force you to bring that up at some point because I know Carter doesn't, I was gonna be like, tell him you met him, me and asked for a job. <laughs> it was like, like tell him the thing. two
1: minutes. Yeah, it was like right after the panel. You know, what's crazy. I actually looked up that that con today, like the, to see if there was pictures of the panel and I found it and I saw if there was like, oh, is there an audience picture? And I found an audience picture and I can spot myself all the way in the fucking back. I'm like, that's me. Cause I was with my friend and I could tell that to my friend. I'm like, that's us. Cause we, we got in super late. So we were just in the back.
4: Oh my Uh, god
1: and i was like ah proof oh yeah
3: it's funny i i actually um i had met the voice actors of of the series too um one of the so i had um very younger younger carter before he ended up getting into the degree of tv and film and whatnot um was thinking about maybe going into journalism and reporting Mm -hmm. um and back in 2017 when i was really really big into ruby um i got tickets to rtx um, but I specifically did it in a way um, because I couldn't go by myself. I had to have my dad go with me. Um, I got press passes and I did a story. I did a story on it. So I got to go to like the media panels and whatnot. And I got to meet basically the entire like voice actors and whatnot. All very sweet people. Very nice from my brief interactions with them. Um, and it's just that that's, that's also like another aspect of the series that I think resonates with a lot of people is how personable a lot of the people working behind it are and how connected the show feels to the fan base but i think that's also a double-edged sword where because it feels so personal it kind of becomes this thing where it's like the show belongs to us and it's mm-hmm. like not really it's it belongs to warner media and they can do whatever they want with it at this point so yeah
0: true.
1: it, it can it, be a manga it can be an anime whatever they want it to be
4: it like- justice league
1: Yeah, Justice League. Uh, What were you gonna say, Sean?
4: Oh no, first go ahead.
2: Oh, I was gonna say the main thing. Once a big corporation got it, does it make money? That's all it cares about. Can you make money out of it? That's it. They'll sacrifice anything in it to make money. Yeah.
4: Yeah, that's that's true. I think I was thinking about it, like when you guys were talking about it. I was trying to think, like, what is like the main, like, describing like the main appeal of Ruby to someone? Because I, you know, like, there's kind of some we kind of touched on it, like you hear some people call Ruby like ugly, which you would not normally expect for a show that is like an action spectacle. But like, I think we've all discussed like the pros to how it looks and like how like the color is a big visual identifier. I think it's like that mix of like fairy tale, maybe like gothic fairy tale, maybe a bit of steampunk fairy tale. Like, you know, like fairy tales kind of aged up for a teenage audience. Like all of that like plays into it. But I think you all touched on a really important note of why I think it resonates with so many people still to this day is that it's kind of still has that element of like the Monty, what I describe as like Monty Um's like signature thing, which is like, this is a guy who made the thing on his computer by himself. And it's kind of scaled up a bit. It's not full fledged, you know, big media production, but it still has that personal feel where you're like, Oh, I can tell like the people, like some people just thought this was cool and they worked on it and so it does have that personable feel that i think a lot of anime fans have too where they're like this is my thing not everyone knows about it but just enough people know about it and we all have this like really deep connection to it and i feel like ruby really carries that well where you have that personable like accessible feeling with it that doesn't feel like super corporate super polished but it still has that heart and soul that a lot of people connect with
3: Ruby, Ruby, I I like to think of as like sort of a time capsule of a specific period. Um, one of the thing, one of the things that I've always said about Ruby is Ruby wears its inspiration on its sleeve, mm-hmm. and its inspiration was Toonami from the years of two thousand seven to two thousand and eleven. Um, <laughs> so whatever you could find on Toonami, it's in Ruby. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of its inspiration from like Gurren Lagann, Cowboy Bebop, Bleach, Naruto there's a lot of inspiration in there. And I think it comes from a time period when anime wasn't really in the mainstream as much when it was still this very like indie, very like, I got to go torrent this online. If I want to go see it, which VHS tape does, does has (laughs) new episodes on. Um, and there's a lot of that, like passion and heart that a lot of anime fans had that was put into it. You know, I described dead fantasy as JRPG anime Fantasia And that's what Ruby kind of wanted to be as well. And I think that's a really cool idea for a show because we always talk about, you know, every every season or so, there's some show that comes around that looks just magnificent, that looks beautiful, and it's all about the spectacle. But we never see, but there's always like something that's like maybe holding it back. Mm -hmm. And I think with Ruby, you could kind of forgive it because it was this very indie production and you don't grade it as harshly. As you know, whatever Studio Mappa or Studio is, Wit is doing, you know, yeah. so you feel a lot of that passion just kind of seep through, and it's hard to not feel contagious and like yeah, get that and be like, yeah, this is really cool, you know?
4: Yeah, hundred percent.
1: Yeah, yeah. Especially with its dead fantasy roots, because again, like that's a good point. Like, uh, you know, I feel like that's essentially the the biggest issue with dead fantasy. As much as we'd want to, you know, see it be official, is it's the licensing hell. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. bringing that into life.
2: The only way so, that's gonna work, you have to get Sakurai to do it. The man is the only. He's the only one. Yeah. Who could,
4: yes. The only so, way. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He yeah. would send. So, he would do it for us.
2: Yeah. So
1: the logical step for someone like Monty that likes that kind of crossover and bringing those worlds together was to make an original IP that could possibly recreate that. So I did like the way you put that, Carter, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah.
4: Which makes sense. I mean, got it. you can't – could not make money on Dead Fantasy as much as we would like, but I – Yeah. Still, I love it. Goat.
3: It's great. It's great. You know, like that's just the thing that it, – it's – I, th- I think we all, like, look for a series that, you know, you can clearly see the passion and love put into it. We all like to talk about our favorites and be like, yeah, I was inspired by, like, this, this, and this. And you can totally see it if you, like, go back and, like, read all of the things that inspired it. And yeah. sometimes it doesn't, like, come come through as apparently. But with Ruby, you can, like, immediately pick up on the cues. Um, mm-hmm. You know, all of the grim designs remind me of, like, hollows from bleach or the um forgetting what they were called in soul eater remind me oh yeah that
4: thing yeah
3: um the even even the first scene in the show itself with ruby in the um in in from dust till dawn the dust shop Mm -hmm. um that's a that's that's an homage to the um to the cowboy bebop movie the opening scene in that yeah um it you see it all over the series and it's a wonderful thing to kind of like see and even as they're still making it when you start seeing the things that they start taking more inspiration from and you start seeing that seep in a little bit it's contagious it's it's yeah. like it is just it's fun it's fun picking out those easter eggs
1: i mean i was uh watching some uh ruby stuff today to so just refresh i was watching like just volume eight fight scenes just to see how the fight scenes now stack up against like you know back then and see if it got better or whatever. And I was seeing the fight with that. You guys were talking about with Penny and versus Cinder or whatever. And like, she pulls out all the blades. And I totally remembered that like Monty just ripped off, like, <laughs> like he took es- essentially uh, a new or v 13s of uh, fight, yeah. like a combat yeah. style from blaze blue back in the day and that was actually taken from dead fantasy Fantasy, volume eight with the preview with nominee and i remember when i think it was bryce that showed me that we were just like oh my god you know like it was just so awesome as a fan like he just literally just used that that combat system uh and and he would just do things like that but uh and it's interesting too that i was when i was reading about the the program he used that the other reason why he liked to use that program is that he he could essentially have a library where he could reuse Mm. all of the the things that he's built and all of the fight scenes and all the characters and models and just sort of keep reusing them. They're already there, ready to go, and that would make his process more efficient. So he would do that all the time and he would just switch up the camera work so it would look different. Um, And that's kind of the advantage. So he was actually reusing stuff from Dead Fantasy just in the Ruby, the early Ruby seasons
3: no man man was man was ingenuitive he he knew how to he knew how to work his programs to the limit and respect just full respect to that you know especially when you're basically a one-man team like Mm -hmm. to be able to do that and pump out high quality content like that's that well animated insane crazy especially for the time period
0: Yeah. yeah yeah
1: yeah um i do have to say though it is easier not super easy but like uh to get away with stunning action choreography than something as mundane as a walk cycle so that's why the first volume of ruby has some weird ass walk cycles
3: <laughs> <laughs> i i love the um i love the running cycle that they use because it's the running cycle that you see tifa use in dead fantasy when she's running on top of the um the, tr- the train, oh, and the train. And yeah yeah yeah, yeah. running on top of the train and it's really funny because it totally does not look natural in the setting <laughs> it in ruby but every time I see it I get a little smile on my face because I think about that because that's probably my favorite episode of Dead yeah. Fantasy.
4: Yeah that one's like I was re-watching Dead Fantasy at work because it's on YouTube so I can just kind of re-watch it and it was like it was wild because 5 you know it's all like a cool like spectacle and stuff but there's like actual like visual storytelling and stuff that is so intriguing that makes me think about it and like you know, yearn for another season, but like, I don't know. I get so like nostalgic for that for so many levels. If if this is if we get the only Mario okay to talk about Dead Fantasy now, if we just yeah, get you guys okay. you guys have that allowed, yeah, allowed to go yeah go for it. Okay, so this I have a weird connection to Dead Fantasy because I played Dead or Alive a lot as a kid in Sears when my mom was looking at appliances and they had Dead or Alive three on the Xbox, so I would play that. And then by the time Xbox 360 came out, they came out with like Dead or Alive 4, which was like one of the flagship games and it had like stunning visuals for the time. And I'm like 13 and I remember playing it as a kid. So I got that and I finished it and I it was like pretty actually like it looked great. The fighting was great. But, like, it had a kind of good story if you're 13 and, like, they played an emotional song for the credit. So I was, like, crying over this, like, fighting game that mostly people know for the beach volleyball spinoff. Very embarrassing. (laughs) It was was such a, like, period. So, like, I I really can never, like, criticize fan service too much as a dead or alive fan because that's, like, the main selling point of the franchise. But I have this very weird emotional connection to it. So, fast forward to whenever Dead Fantasy comes out, like, most people, I think, were connected to it for the Final Fantasy aspect, for understandable reasons, because it's the much bigger franchise, but I knew about all the Final Fantasy stuff, but I had actually, like, played Dead or Alive, so I'm like, oh, wait, like, I know all of these references, and I remember in, like, the first episode, it was, like, I saw one of, like, the signature moves that, like, I would do, I'm like, okay, that's, like, You can do that in the game. That's really impressive. And like it just kind of moved from there as like it kept expanding. So, I mean, I think it's just so cool to see like two different types of fighting combat games put together. And you kind of it's that cool idea that you get for like crossover series where you're like, okay, who would win if we have this scenario this power is allowed like they're allowed to do all of this what would happen and it's just kind of like the thought process of like how would these really cool fights play out and like you don't even really get a winner sometimes like some things always kind of interrupt them which makes it interesting i think but just like the thought process and seeing how it plays out from someone who obviously cared about both franchises could really like animate them and like bring them to life in an interesting way is like peak internet for me it's like the coolest product that you could only see on the internet
3: yeah no I mean I I have to agree I mean like you said my 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 exposure to it was through Final Fantasy specifically through 7 because I was I was a diehard Final Fantasy 7 fan I had I have memories of going to my uncle's house and seeing his PS1 there and basically beating Final Fantasy 7 over the course of like three years um and you know Final Fantasy Seven shaped so much of, like, my media taste in general. Mm-hmm. It's, like, that and, like, Batman. Like, that, like, yeah. shaped <laughs> just that um, So, you know, I was a huge fan of Cloud, and I loved Tifa because I mm-hmm. thought it was really cool that she, that in this world where everyone had, like, guns and, like, swords, she was just punching things. That's cool. Yeah. That's just cool yeah. to me. Um, yeah. So, obviously, when I saw her in, like, Dead Fantasy for the first time, I was like, oh, my God. Like, it's Tifa. I know her. And it was yeah. really cool because, you know, uh, I, I think at this time, I don't know if Dissidia had really, like, hit the West yet, mm-hmm. but the only time you'd really gotten to see Tifa, like, actually, like, fight was Advent Children.
4: Yeah. yeah. That yes. was the only
3: time you really got to see it. Because, mm-hmm. you know, obviously, Seven was built at the very beginning of the PS1, and has aged like cheese. Um, <laughs> and you never got to see her, like, really, really fight, and this was the first time you really got to see it, and it was as cool as everyone imagined it as. And, you know, just to to also keep it, like, full circle, when I saw Yang, it was very clear that she was Mm Tifa-inspired, and, you know, when I was going and rewatching like, Dead Fantasy, like, now, and I was seeing all the Tifa fight scenes, and I was seeing just how they were, like, choreographed and the moves she was doing, I was, like, I was like, this is like so Yang. This is exactly who Yang is when she fights. And it's great. Like, and there were just so many like things that he did in Dead Fantasy that just made it really special. It just made it really, really work.
2: Yeah. There are things, there are scenes where he incorporated like things from um, the different games like Materia, how like Tifa was losing Materia in her fight. I was like, oh, wow, that's because when I when I walked in, when I watched Dead Fantasy originally, I'm just like, OK, so these are Dead or Alive characters versus Final Fantasy characters. I'm like, well, there should be no way that a Dead or Alive character yeah. <laughs> should be the Final Fantasy character. It's like, OK, yeah. what's going on here? And I was like, oh, this is really interesting. And then you get into more of the lore of Dead or Alive, like, oh, wait, the ninja's. They can do some stuff. Like I <laughs> boost is legit. Like he'll, yeah. he'll, he'll he'll kill people. And like you got uh, Ayane, of course. So I was like, oh, okay, this is getting really interesting. And then you know, he threw in some Kingdom Hearts. I'm like, Kyrie, yeah. like Kyrie Kyrie just got a keyblade, what, a couple of years ago <laughs> <in canon."> <laughs> Can <laughs> you we Can we say it? that Monty gave her a keyblade first before Nomura gave her a keyblade?
4: I was gonna say that I feel like Kyrie and like Dead or, Dead Fantasy is kind of like better than Kyrie. I <laughs> in mean, Dark. I don't even
1: think that's a hot take. I okay, think that's, that's, that's not even far off. She she has done nothing.
3: <laughs> yeah, my, she... my favorite thing about about Dead Fantasy Kyrie is that in the in the teaser for for episode eight, when she takes off her clothes and the dress drops, and it's clearly Nominé's dress, mm-hmm. and then when she starts actually doing stuff her hair turns yellow and she basically turns into nominee. Yeah. That hit, that, that hit a little bit different. That hit a little bit different. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's like a great point. Like, cause as much as it's like the fan service game, like dead or alive does have those like lore to it that you just, cause like they're up to like six now they got to do something. So like, it's interesting and you get something like episode four where it's like Kasumi is fighting, um, Yuna, And then all of a sudden, all of like the Kasumi clones show up and she look like she looks conflicted and she's not actually fighting, you know, like I got that completely because she like doesn't she's always trying to like stop her clones like she has no control over her clones like she's trying to fight them herself. So like seeing like something be like so emotionally conflicting in that moment and then seeing like Yuna take them down for a bit and struggle and then like cloud shows up like just so cool but then uh like kasumi's like later take like takes them away and takes them you know teleports them somewhere to take them down herself like it's such an interesting way of staying true to both sides while also showing like you know whatever conflict is going on like we don't know but it's like they all have their sides but no one's really good or bad like you see the different levels of like morality that they don't let they're having their individual fight proving themselves or whatever. And when people start interfering, they're like, nah, that's not cool. Like you're going too far. Like we're not actually trying to do anything too harmful. Like there's just like a specific reason we're engaging in this, which is left up to interpretation, but it's interesting.
3: They're very specific cues in the way that the, that the people are animated to that really show it as well. One of the things that I love about it is how They show the teamwork between everyone. Like Mm -hmm. people are like jumping off of each other. They're helping everyone up. Like they're moving and they're like they feel like a collective unit. And that's one of those things that also carried over to early Ruby that I absolutely loved. Where you know they're basically group mob rushes and like (laughs) and (laughs) that's what I that's what I loved because so many series are about like the one on one and like getting that emotional connection there, but there's something to be said about just watching four people just beat the hell out of someone. Like it's, it's yeah. kind of, it's kind of great. It's yeah. Yeah, of
2: there. Great. yeah. During that whole thing, there were scenes in dead fantasy. I'm just like, you just got hit with an ax. <laughs> <a bullet." Yeah. laughs> <laughs> Wait, <laughs> you can't get up from that. <laughs> yeah. oh, you're, oh, okay. You're just going to get up and, and keep going. I was like, all right. I used to think um, it was going to get really serious because they started before I think before Dead Fantasy stopped, they were starting to bring in some of the male characters, in there. I was like, okay, well, if things things were real before, um, I mean, you put Hayabusa, Hayato in there, and then you could Cloud, Vincent was coming. I'm like, yeah, oh, oh shit, <laughs> yeah, no, it was gonna, it was it was gonna get really wild. Yeah, was, I'm pretty sure it was gonna get really nuts. And I'm I'm more positive that Sephiroth was gonna show up at some point because got it, you gotta have Cloud there. Have Sephiroth
3: is always it's always there.
1: He'll <laughs> never be a memory. will never I be a memory.
3: Think, I think the biggest visual cue of Sephiroth showing up was one, all of the feathers that kept on appearing before people. And yeah. two, at the end of episode two, when Rinoa shows up, mm. she's one winged angel, like to the max, descending from the sky, yes. like and everything. And yes. I remember when Cloud first showed up, my first thought was like Oh my God, he's going to do the Omni slash. He's going to do the Omni slash on someone and somebody's going to die. Yeah. And, and then after that, my next thought was, where is Sephiroth? Because like you said, if Cloud is there, Sephiroth is not far behind. Yeah, exactly. No matter where you are. He followed him to Super Smash Brothers. <laughs> I was about to say that.
1: It's just, it's so insane to think like, we're talking about this, like back in the day, like crossovers, you wouldn't believe. And now like we have them in Super Smash Brothers. It's
4: crazy. Each how episode was like a Super Smash Bros. Yeah, reveal, really was. where you're like, yeah. "Who's going to yeah. show up next?" And then they just yeah. add this, and you're like, "This we're just keep going to keep going." And then it just keeps getting more and more hype.
2: And the only yeah. again, the only person who can get it done, who can bring back Dead Fantasy, is going to be Sakurai. I'm telling you, he's the only one. Yeah.
1: I did hear. uh, I don't know. I don't know the details on this, but I was I read earlier that they there was a Dead Fantasy remake like last year by someone. Is that I
4: saw hmm. that on YouTube, right? The guy is just like remaking it in like a higher. Yeah, I think is that it. is that what it was? Just yeah, a remaster, okay? Because they yeah.
1: had it labeled labeled as remake, so I wasn't sure uh, what it was. Yeah, Re, remaster, okay.
2: Especially yeah. how strict the I um the IP laws are right now. I don't, <laughs> I don't yeah, think yeah. You could, like yeah. actually remake it and not like get sued into oblivion or copyright yeah. copyright I mean, uh, stricken into oblivion. I mean, now
1: that Ruby's an IP, maybe they'll make a a fantasy style crossover for Ruby and something else. Ruby and like you said, Justice League, but this time a fight ruby slash injustice
2: well i mean the ruby characters have been appearing in a in blaze blue cross tag
1: oh okay oh yeah yeah, that's right that's right Mm -hmm. and haven't they also been in like some gotcha games too
3: um yeah they were in like they were like a couple of like really like non-descript ones and then they had their own little gotcha castle crashers game um called amity arena which i think shut down like about a year ago um but you know the the big thing with ruby now is you know there's very there's very clearly a push to try and put it in more stuff now Mm -hmm. um so you know i wouldn't be surprised i mean the one the one big thing that i think a lot of people thought we'd get at some point was a fighting game just because Mm -hmm. with arxis like attached to stuff we kind of figured oh that's the next logical step um i think the only big issue is i don't know how well a ruby fighting game would sell like i i've seen arxis Mm -hmm. make a lot of fighting games i've seen them make a lot um and you know their fighting games based off of like ips or whatnot usually have a big enough ip that they're usually big enough ip that they can like sell maybe like a million two million copies based off just based off of like mm-hmm. their ip alone like like the ultimax series i think grand blue was even pretty popular and then they're making dnf which i know is like a hugely popular game in like korea i think um mm-hmm. So they're able to push those IPs and sell those units. I don't know how well a Ruby fighting game would sell, but I know when Arcsis had announced they were like producing a Ruby-related game, everyone was like, "Oh, like it's going to be a fighting game. It's going to be great." I honestly thought it was going to be along the lines of like Kill a Kill if, where it was just like we're producing it, but like some other team is just handling the rest. Mm. It's mm. instead a Metroidvania that's releasing later this year that's also canon to the series in between volume 7 and volume 8 or in between volume 7 at some point so there's clearly a push to want to have it in more stuff and I wouldn't be surprised if honestly I wouldn't even be surprised if you know whenever um, Netherrealm gets around to making Injustice 3 if they maybe push that put push that into you know push one of those characters into there as mm. just like a, as like a DLC character, because I mean, they've done like Hellboy, they've done Mortal Kombat characters, they did the, the Ninja Turtles, which gave us an amazing reaction image that I love every single time. I, I see video. <laughs> like, dude, I could be gaming. I love that video. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's it, it's just really interesting to see like Ruby go from like this like indie project to like this is an IP now you're going to see it everywhere and you're going to like it.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Ruby's, uh, I guess in the mainstream now, um, more I, or less. Yeah. It's
3: big, it's big enough that I, I think it's gotten like, I know it's gotten like a New York comic con panel. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It's gotten like a big New York comic con panel before. Um, I know they've done stuff at San Diego comic con as well with it. Um, I know it was like all over like the the promotional material, I think, for like 2019 San Diego Comic Con. Um it's it's one of those series where I think at this point it's become it, it, I think it's I think it's just by osmosis osmosis at this point become just part of our like general understanding of anime as a medium mm-hmm. and just a whole. So yeah. it's just it's interesting. It's like really interesting seeing it as like the sort of like subsection of everything and like what it ended up inspiring and whatnot.
1: So with that, um, personal question for you guys, yeah. do you consider Ruby an anime? I have to ask this, have you thought it's always been an anime, uh, or, you know, or is it only now an anime now that it's getting an adaptation?
2: <laughs> uh, I personally never thought of Ruby as an anime. It has anime elements, but I've never thought of it as an anime because anime really, you know, depending on the genre of anime, it really sticks close to its tropes. Like it really holds on. And and Ruby for me, is like, so I don't think it's like that. And it's just, it, it just does its own thing in its own way sometimes to its detriment. So for me, I never felt that it was an anime, but it is anime esque. Like, when people complain, when people not complain, but when the, the big argument about Avatar, the last Ambrander and legend of Korra. Oh, it's, it's an American anime. Well, yeah, I mean, you can say that. I mean, mm-hmm. but it has, it's still its own thing in its own way. Cause it does have tropes, but it's, I would say like, it's more like a novel. If you go to like the avatar and everything, like, Oh, you're the chosen one. You have to fix this, everything like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. So I would say Ruby's just, you know, it's an American show with, uh, with, you know, anime esque themes mm-hmm. for
3: me. Yeah. I, I look at ruby as as much i think ruby's as much of an anime as like Cannon busters neo yokio and like and like steven universe or anime like it very clearly has its inspiration there it very clearly knows it wants to be an anime but i think the only part of it that is an anime is ice queendom because it's very clearly made by like
0: mm-hmm.
3: a japanese team yeah. with a japanese focus yeah and yeah. ruby's Ruby's story structure, I've always felt and ideas have always followed a more Western mm-hmm. ideology rather than an Eastern one. Um because, you know, I think that I I think that, you know, at the core of a lot of stories is always like overcoming, you know, personal like strife and whatnot. But the way that the way that the two sides of the world do it are very differently, do it yeah. very differently. And I think that the way the way that I, I see Japan usually do it is you overcome something, but at a cost. Mm-hmm. There's always a cost to overcoming something. But I think in I think in more Western related media, it's usually like you overcome it and you and like you, you do it and it's about the journey of how you overcome it. Mm-hmm. And Ruby very much follows the it's about the journey, mm-hmm. um, yeah. rather than like what are you giving up for it? You know. Yeah. Um, so and that's really where I kind of draw the line at. Um, I know that with how media at this point has just become such a global thing, and how we're experiencing stories from all different walks of life, the 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 phrase "anime" at a certain point is probably just gonna it's gonna go by the wayside a little bit at a certain point because it's just gonna become just another cartoon. We're already yeah. getting to that point in yeah. time where it's just becoming part of our media diet. Um, yeah. So. I don't really look at main rubies and anime. Ice Queendom obviously as one, very yep. clearly as one. And I think that it's going to take it's going to be a very different kind of story than what main ruby is gonna be. Yeah.
4: yeah. And I think we've gotten to a point now, like, back in the day, I think when you say, like, yo, this thing isn't an anime, people kind of take it as an insult because they're like, oh, you're calling it a cartoon. You're saying, like, it's not as serious. You're saying it's not as good as anime. And Mm -hmm. I think we're all kind of in the similar boat where, like, we're not talking about cartoon versus anime in terms of one is better than the other. It's more of, like, the classification in terms of, like, who is making it, where it's coming from. And then, as you said, like, Eastern versus Western styles of storytelling. And I think that's a really great distinction to make for the people who do take it as like calling something a cartoon is an insult when like, you know, none of us on, a, on an anime podcast consider calling something a cartoon an insult since yeah. here we are. Yeah. yeah.
1: yeah. Young Justice is yeah. great. Yeah. Yeah. Young Justice was great till season two. I don't know about season three.
3: Arcane, <laughs> Arcane is the best anime produced in the past 10 years. I'm just saying. Like, yeah.
1: So good. Uh, no, but I, I, yeah, no, definitely. It's not to, uh, to gatekeep as you know, that's why people would get offended in the past with, uh, calling Ruby, you know, yeah. not an anime because it's the whole like gatekeeping notion, but really it's, it's like Shaw was saying, it's a, it's a classification. It's really, it is definitely anime inspired, but at soon, sooner or later, none of that's going to matter anyway, you know, cause again, it's all going to be like, Oh, where was this produced? You know, this country, that yeah. country, and that's kind of it, but yeah, um, yeah. That's kind of all we got. Uh, did you guys want to add anything else about, you know, Ruby or Dead Fantasy or anything that we we didn't really cover?
2: Hopefully the next volume comes out soon. <laughs> <laughs> it, has, it,
1: it has been more than a year, right?
2: Yeah, but, you know, I partly blame that on the COVID times, but
0: mm-hmm. yeah,
2: I know yeah. that's slowed down pr- production. But yeah, hopefully yeah. it comes out soon so I can see where they're taking the story and whether or not this volume breaks me. <laughs>
3: I'm like, all right, I'm <laughs> it's 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 funny because you know the um the i i think this this volume is very clearly a make or break for the series i think for a lot of people because they've done something very interesting where they've isolated about 6 of the characters on an island and mm-hmm. now you're kind of forced to give them character development because yeah. they're the only 6 people there you're kind of forced to do that yeah. um and one of the big criticisms with the show as well has always been the production times because there's always been an incredibly quick turnaround. Like a season will start in November end in February, they'll make an announcement for the next season with a trailer for the next season in Mm -hmm. July and then have the next season ready in November as well. Mm -hmm. Like there is an incredibly quick turnaround and I can't imagine that production cycle helps the show and it's script in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. Um, now, however, they've basically given themselves two years to work on this. Yeah. It, is, it is going to be about a two-year wait since the last volume. Yeah. On, and I think that's going to be telling of what the final product is going to be like for the, for the yeah. show. Because yeah. the one thing I can say, too, you, you, one thing we've kind of talked about this entire time is we're here to see how it ends. Mm-hmm. Bryce, let me ask you a question. How do you think Ruby's going to end? Because I have no, I have no clue. It's oh to end. my
2: goodness! There's so many
3: plot lines they have
2: because the characters are set up to be like they're almost a little bit like their fairy tale characters. So Sean is Joan of the Ark, Joan of, Joan of Arc. So if it goes by that, he's supposed to be burnt alive. <laughs> so, yeah. And then I mean, the main thing. I would say is that it's either going to be Ruby defeats Salem, like not team Ruby, Ruby. I think it's going to be Ruby herself because they were kind of angling that at volume eight, that at the end, it's going to be somehow Ruby has to overcome this, um, overcome this huge mountain that no one else has been able to overcome. And um, Ruby's not going to find a way to kill Salem. She's because Ruby seems more or less like the type of person who wants to help people once she knows their circumstances. So like Salem is probably going to be one of those people that she tries to like help out once she knows more about her. I think, I think the only person she cannot forgive is Cinder. I honestly, so I think it's going to end with, I think it's going to be a happy ending with a bunch of other people who died.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I kind of, I kind of look at it as like, it's going to be like Naruto and Nagato. At a certain point like you got that really big like fight scene that's going to be like super spectacle heavy and a bunch of people are going to die and ruby and salem are going to talk it out and salem's going to kind of be like all right you win i concede you got it and then cinder's probably going to come in and be like nope and then torch the place they got to fight at some point um i do agree that i think it's probably going to be a happy ending just because i don't think this show really has the balls to Kill off one of its main characters at the end. I, I don't think so because
4: I, I mean
1: if they do they, they lose one of the letters in the title. <laughs> they do
4: Ruby anymore.
3: Like because I mean I, I I think that there would just be a general riot from within the fan base that they would kill off one of the one of the main characters. I'd personally like to see it not because I hate any of them just because I mean they unless do they
2: it, do it heroically it ha- it would have to be some sort of sacrifice it have to be
1: Ruby uh, sacrifices herself.
3: I don't know about that. I yeah, I mean I'd like to I'd like to see that just because I think it would kind of fit with the parallels of summer but like it would give like a different sort of like distinction to it. Give it give it a, a different meaning um because you know I think that, I think there could be something really I think there could be a really genuine and cool idea behind Ruby dying and basically being like I leave the world in your hands. I leave the world in your hands in better I leave the world in your hands rebuild regrow.
0: Mm
3: -hmm. um but yeah in in terms of other things i I wanted to say um just to to anyone who's listening who's saw ice queendom and is basically like oh boy i really want to check out ruby now because now it has its own anime i'm going to to just warn you ahead of time anything that's in ice queendom is probably not what you're going to see in the main show it is going to be two totally different experiences and i think that works to its benefit and it works to its detriment because, again, going into this, I wasn't sure who this was going to be appealing to, especially after that first trailer when they just showed a bunch of redone stuff from the first two volumes, which really kind of disappointed me. Um, mm-hmm. But I think that if you're a new fan who wants to get into the series, go for it. Have fun. Keep in mind some of the things that we might have talked about. Um I trust all of you guys have reasonable heads. Um, But, you know, I also do think it would be... I also do think it's worth checking out Ice Queendom when it does come out, just because I think that it is going to be a very different thing. And I think it's going to be very interesting to compare and contrast the two and kind of see, like, what an actual, like, industry professional writer's take on Ruby is. Because Miles and Carrie are not industry professionals um i forgot who the writer is for ice Queen i know it's the guy that did psychopath season two which kind of kind of scary right off the bat but you know (laughs) but i think it's going to be i think it's going to be interesting i think it's going to be a very interesting take and i hope that people would be willing to give both a chance and kind of see where
4: it leads them
1: so after everything after all the disappointment you guys would still lean towards You know, telling people that haven't watched Ruby, Ruby is still worth checking out with the asterisks, with the caveats, but you still generally like Ruby for the world building Mm -hmm. and for the lore and for, you know, the potential that it has.
2: And you think it's still worth checking out. Yeah. I would just say say? to to quote Scar from The Lion King, be prepared. (laughs) (laughs) Okay.
3: Yeah. It's, you know, it's hard for me still to not recommend it to people because it was such an impactful show for me i you know if 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 i hadn't watched it probably wouldn't be here talking with you guys mm-hmm. um and you know i i just think that i think there's something there i think it's worth seeing the creative idea of someone like monty kind of play out because if you're someone if you're someone like me who's always looking out for kind of like up and coming creators and you're trying to f- pick pick out like the indie stuff because you think the big the bigger corporations and whatnot aren't giving you the stories that you really want to see going back and looking at like Monty's work and seeing what he was doing at the time and understanding the importance and the impact that it had I think it's just super important and just a great experience for anyone especially you know for people who are animation buffs who just want to see something just really cool that they might not have seen before
0: Yeah. All right.
4: Yeah, definitely.
1: That's well said. And we've loved having you guys on. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for chatting with us about Ruby informing us of all the stuff we've been missing out and aren't up to date on. So it's good. It's good to kind of get the lay of the land as to where Ruby is now, where the fan base is and all of that. Um, Yeah. And uh, besides that, uh, you know, if you want to check out uh, our friend Carter here, he has his Twitter. Which is uh, at uh, what is it, Carter?
3: <laughs> it's, um, it's Carter triple underscore J. I think I think that's okay. The handle. Yeah,
1: you could uh, follow him, interact with him there. Uh, and as for Bryce, uh, he's exclusive to the just weeps podcast. So, you know, we will remain, you know, we'll keep keep him for whenever, whenever we want to bring him back on and and Carter as well is welcome too. uh, but with that, we're gonna, we're gonna head off guys. Uh, thank you so much for listening to the episode. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to see all four of us back on for another pod, either related to Ruby or dead fantasy, let us know in the comments. And that might happen. And if you haven't subscribed already, you know, help the channel grow by subscribing. And that's it. That's, those are our opinions or Ruby on Ruby. I think we had a very balanced fair conversation, which is, you know, I was afraid we were not going to have, you know, cause that's why I've been uh, avoiding Ruby, but it was, it was there. It exists. So, you know, and if you don't agree with it and you have more extreme conversations, well, fuck you. I don't want to know. <laughs> <After> all, <laughs> what do we know? We only know what we know. We're just weaves.